My name is John Lee. I'm, I'm a friend of Matt's and part-time substitute teacher here at Delray. Uh, <laughs> brings me great joy to bring you God's word this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, I'm going to be reading from verses 13, or or 17 to 31. If this is your first time using a Bible, big numbers are chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. So I'm going to be reading from verse 17 to 31. I'll be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, which shouldn't, shouldn't be that different from the translation that you have. Mark 10, verse 17 says this. As he, being Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father, or children, or fields, for my sake, and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now, at this time, houses, brothers, and sisters, mothers, and children, and fields with persecutions, and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that these words are truly the Word of God. So we ask, God, that you would speak to us through your Word this morning. Spirit, we ask that you would soften our hearts, 
Keep our minds attentive and, and present as we engage with your word. And we pray that you would transform us into the likeness of your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love old hymns. Uh, one of the reasons why I love old hymns is because my dad forced me to sit in family worship as a child. Uh, and it was worse because I was part of a Korean immigrant family who sang hymns in Korean, and I didn't understand a word of what I sang. But I remember the melodies. I remember grabbing a, a Korean hymnal and flipping to 102, which was one of my dad's favorite hymns, and singing, I'd Rather Have Jesus, week after week. As I got older, and I understood what the words actually meant, the song became harder to sing. That you'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. That you'd rather have Jesus than riches untold, houses or lands, worldwide fame. That you'd really treasure Jesus more than anything else in the world. That's a hymn that gets harder to sing as time goes on, doesn't it? It's easy to say that you'd rather have Jesus when you don't have much. But then you, you go through school, you get a career, you get a job, you start to pay taxes. And those words begin to carry more weight. This morning we look at a story of Jesus interacting with a rich young man who's unable to sing and say those words with sincerity. The main idea for us this morning is this. Following Jesus costs everything. Following Jesus costs everything. As we walk through the story, we'll be able to see uh, Jesus' care for, the, for this rich young ruler as he interacts with him. Let's read from verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. Here you see a rich young man. Uh, other Bible Gospels tell the same story and identify him as a, as a ruler or a man of reputation. And he runs up to Jesus and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers his question with another question. He asks him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now some people will use this verse to try to argue that Jesus is denying his divinity as though he, he never thought of himself as the Son of God. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not denying his own divinity as much as he's trying to press a point. I, I went on lunch with a, with a pastor friend of mine named Andy at, at a Popeye's, the one that actually got shut down because of the viral rats. That was where I lived in D.C. I love that location. I'm still mourning its loss. Uh, we sat down, and, and Andy asked me, would you like ketchup for your fries? And I said, no, Andy, I'm good. And without skipping a beat, he turned down to his food and he said, no one's good but God. Thanks, Andy. Um, I was saying that I didn't need ketchup. Andy 
took my statement as opportunity to raise the bar and talk about my sinful nature. The rich young ruler calls Jesus good teacher out of respect. But what Jesus is doing is he's raising the bar to talk about his own godly nature. Jesus knows the title of good master does apply to him. And even more so that he himself is the definition of goodness. Because he is God. The question is whether this young man really understands what he just said. And Jesus is asking him, do you really mean it? Do you know what you're calling me? Who do you think Jesus is? The rich young ruler approaches Jesus with respect. I mean, he'd be a difficult man not to respect. Jesus had performed miracles. He was widely known as a thoughtful teacher. He, he taught people to love their neighbor, to have good morals for us to live our lives by. And this young man clearly values what Jesus has to say. I mean, in verse 17, it says that he ran up to Jesus and knelt before him. This is a guy who heard that Jesus wasn't down, dropped everything, and bolted towards him. It was clear that he was desperate for answers. And he knew that Jesus was a good teacher who could point him in the right direction. But the problem with this young man isn't that he doesn't respect Jesus. He absolutely does. But he doesn't revere Jesus as God. See, for Jesus, respect isn't enough. Who do you think Jesus is? We live in a day where respect often replaces agreement, where you sit and have a conversation. Some people have some crazy opinions. And rather than disagreeing, you, you tend to just say, hey, that's great that that's like your opinion, man. But often that response can shut down real dialogue. Especially for a topic that could be as toxic as religion. We could be tempted to just kind of throw our hands up, plead ignorance, and walk away. And just say something like, listen, I respect all religions equally. I mean, after all, isn't it arrogant to assume that Christianity is right? Too exclusive to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Isn't it more humble to consider all possibilities as equally plausible? There's a lot to affirm there. I think it's a good idea to consider other, pers other perspectives, to be willing to challenge your own presuppositions. But having a stance on who Jesus is isn't narrow-minded. When, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, what Jesus is making is a statement of fact. Either he's right or he's wrong. In fact, most religions do this. If I ask a devout Muslim whether he thinks that I will go to heaven, if he loves me, and he's being honest and thoughtful, he's going to tell me no. And vice versa. I'd say the same thing about him. And while we may disagree, we both of us are taking the claims of each other's religion seriously. I'm treating the brother that I may disagree with 
with intellectual respect and thoughtfulness. Either Muhammad was correct or he was wrong. Either Jesus was correct in stating that he was God or he wasn't. See, to say that all religions are equally true actually belittles the claims that each religion makes. Right? For me to say that all religions are equally true is the same thing as me saying all religions are equally wrong. It doesn't take a religion's claim of exclusivity seriously. Jesus sees his divinity as a fact, not just his own perspective. And a fact isn't narrow. To say that something is true isn't to be narrow-minded. If you don't eat, you're going to die. Why are you being so narrow-minded? It's either true or it's not. There's no neutral ground. And Jesus here is questioning the rich young ruler to challenge him on whether or not he sees who Jesus really is. Jesus isn't denying his divinity as much as he's raising the bar on what it means to be good. And you'll see why in verse 19. Read with me. It says, You know the commandments? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, the good teacher, reminds this ruler of the good law. He mentions the second part of the Ten Commandments. And after the rich young ruler hears all of these laws, he says that he's kept all of it. You may be tempted to laugh at that. Let's give the rich young ruler the benefit of the doubt for a moment. I mean, maybe he's responding with a genuine, deeper inquiry. Like, really? That's it? I've, I've already done that. There, there has to be something else. After all, the rich young ruler was, by all accounts, a good guy. I mean, he likely was a stand-up citizen, respected by his community. He probably attended synagogue since he was a kid, kept the Sabbath, showed up to church on time, cared for his neighbors. As a Hebrew, he learned the law from an early age. In fact, he probably memorized the entire Pentateuch. Right, the first five books of the Bible. So he knows all the law. He has it all put together. He knows the rules of the game. So when, when Jesus recites the commandments to him, maybe he's getting frustrated and he responds by saying that he already knows that already. But regardless of his intent, his answer shows that he doesn't really understand Jesus' point. If the rich young man really understood the teachings of Jesus, he would have understood that Jesus expects more than external actions, but he demands internal affections. He would know that the bar is higher than not just not committing murder, but it's not having hate towards anyone in your own heart. That's higher than just not committing adultery. It's not looking at anyone with lustful intent. That's higher than just not stealing. It's killing envy in your own heart. That the law doesn't exist primarily for us as a manual of how you're supposed to live your life, but as a mirror exposing our sinful nature. 
that the hearing the law should convict your heart in such a way to reveal that you're not good. Instead, just minutes after hearing Jesus say that no one is good but God, the rich young ruler responds by saying, Me too! His answer doesn't reveal humility as much as it reveals his pride. The rich young ruler takes the mirror of God's law and turns it into a vanity. And Jesus cares too much for this man to leave him in a state of moralistic self-improvement. You see Jesus' response there in verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another than, who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. Because all things are possible with God. Jesus looks at this rich young man and identifies the one thing that he could not get rid of. His stuff. Jesus tells him to sell everything he has and to give it to the poor. And at that moment, the rich young man's heart shatters. He tried to serve both God and money, and he got caught. Wealth is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it can help us accomplish many things. It provides for our needs, advance the gospel. You shouldn't voluntarily step into a life of homelessness. The Bible talks about how if you don't provide for your own family, you're worse than an infidel. On the other hand, wealth can pile up distractions and illusions of grandeur in such a way that blinds us from being able to see Jesus. Now, being poor doesn't make you holy. But when you don't have much, you frequently have to confront the tension between what you want and what you have. It reveals idols. It shows our sinful preferences for security or our sinful desire for things. And when you have much, when you live comfortably, when you're wealthy, you can convince yourself that you aren't actually attached to any of those things. But then when you're confronted with the possibility of losing your things, you start to clutch your purse. And what Jesus is pointing out is that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We can talk a big game, but when you have to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, suddenly your idols begin to come out. 
Here you can see Jesus' utter disregard for the status of the world. He's not afraid to speak hard words to the respected in the society. Right? And he doesn't find it beneath him to help those in need. He tells the rich young man not just to get rid of his things, but to give it to the poor. You can see Christians embody this spirit from the early church as they give joyfully from what they have and give to whoever has need. I love that you guys have free groceries in the back every Sunday to care for the poor. I think it's exactly in line with the type of attitude that Jesus is embodying here when he cares for the poor and the needy. And he expects all Christians to have this same spirit of generosity. I'm friends with a pastor who secretly tithes his entire salary back to the church. His family situation allows for him to be able to take care of all of his needs, so he just gives it all back. Now, before you ask, he's not looking for another church. <laughs> right. uh, but I remember finding out, he doesn't share this with everyone, but I'm a, I'm a close friend. I remember finding this out and just being <laughs> utterly flabbergasted. I was like, why are you doing this, man? He gave me two reasons. The first was because he truly believed in the church's ministry. That that if a church's budget is like a spiritual mutual fund, trying to invest the resources we have to create spiritual dividends, he really believed what his church was doing was advancing the kingdom of God. He believed in it. He was happy to show that with his wallet. And he was making very clear to me in our conversation, that he didn't think that he was doing the church any favors. This wasn't a charity case. He believed in the church's mission. He believed it was going to bear fruit for him and rewards in the kingdom of heaven. The second was because he loved that he could look at everything that the world would try to convince him was valuable and be able to show with his actions that he couldn't care less. Now, Matt and Tony didn't ask me to talk about giving. I didn't look at the chart before I came up here or prepped anything. Right? I don't know about your church's particular financial situation, but if I could just counsel you as a former pastor who loves churches and loves you, um, the first thing I'd say is that God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need you in order to accomplish his mission. But I want to encourage you that if you believe in the mission of this church, if you believe in the work that Del Rey is doing to advance the kingdom of heaven here on earth, if you believe in the discipling work that your pastors are doing, if you believe in the work of, of this church and witnessing to the community and sharing the gospel and discipling you and your children and future generations of Christians, I want to encourage you to give. We want to see Christians encouraged in the faith and growing. And we also believe that, that not just your own giving that you give to the church, but all of your finances belong to the Lord. Everything that you have belongs to God. And one way that you and I get to look at the world and show with our actions that we're not enslaved to our possessions is through our giving. But is it inherently wrong to have stuff? No, it's not. I'm, I'm going to get in my car and drive away after preaching this morning. Right? There's no verse in the Old Testament that commands that you must give up everything you own and give it to the poor. 
Right? We don't want to play spiritual whack-a-mole with different sins. If you knock down wealth, you're going to have another idol there. But once you place your security in your goods or anything else, you elevate it to the place of God. And anything that isn't God, that takes the place of God, in the Bible is called an idol. And what Jesus was trying to show this rich young man was that he hasn't followed the law since he was a child. In fact, Jesus deliberately only quotes the second table of the law, all the stuff that relates to you and your neighbor and other people. But he leaves out the first half to show that this rich young man didn't just fail at keeping the law since he was a child, but he failed at the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You could give away everything that you own and still have a sinful heart. If you take care of greed, there'll just be another sin to take its place. The point here isn't to knock out particular sins in your life, but to realize on your own, even with all the world's possessions, we're still lacking. The rich young man walks away dismayed. And that word for dismayed there in the Greek is the same as describing rulers and kings being overthrown. And this man was defeated because he bowed his knee to his possessions. His hand couldn't let go of his cash to be able to grasp onto Christ. He was financially rich, but he was spiritually bankrupt. What about you? Everybody worships something. Whether it's stuff, security, status, success, or or anything else, we're all controlled by our own desires. Romans 3 says that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. If we all look at the mirror of God's law, we're going to find out that we're dirty, filthy, and sinful. We're all found lacking. And the disciples are completely right to throw up their hands and ask, who can be saved? Who can pass this test? No one can do it. And this rich young ruler walks away in grief, unable to let go of his things. If only he knew that Jesus wasn't seeking merely to condemn him, but to save him. Look again at verse 20, look at look at how or 21, look at how it describes Jesus there. It says, looking at this man, Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. Jesus looks at this rich young ruler. It sees right through his self-righteous veneer. And he sees the man's idolatry, but rather than being repulsed by his sin, Jesus is compelled by love. But he doesn't enable his sin either. Rather than allowing him to continue in sinful self-delusion, Jesus lovingly reveals his sinful soul. Jesus responds in both compassion and conviction. He does the same for you and I. Jesus loves us 
too much to allow us to remain in the shackles of self-righteousness. If you try to put on the makeup of your own good deeds to be presentable before God, Jesus is going to continue to look at you and say, you still lack one thing. One thing. The one thing that the rich young ruler lacked. The one thing that he really needed wasn't an instruction manual. It was a person. He needed Jesus. All of us are sinful and deserving of death. It is not possible for any of us to be able to be saved. Jesus is the only one who can provide the eternal life that you and I seek. See, no one is good but God alone. And with man, it is impossible for any person to enter the kingdom of God. But with God, all things are possible. God took on flesh and dwelt among us. In all other religions, you see a prophet who helps you find God. In Jesus, God comes to find us. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became as poor. He lived the perfect life that you and I never could. He fulfilled the letter of the law perfectly. And on the cross, Jesus bore the punishment that you and I deserved. Putting death, uh, putting sin to death through his own death. And three days later, he rose again victorious over sin and death. So the promise that Jesus provides for you and I is that if you turn away from your sin, if you loosen your grasp on whatever holds you, and you hold on to Jesus, He will give you Himself. Jesus asks this rich young ruler to give up all that he had. But He was also offering him the most precious thing that he had, Himself. Jesus offers you the most precious thing that He could give. And Jesus will never ask of you more than what He Himself has already given. Tim Keller says this, that the, that the gospel is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is what makes Christianity different than just religious rule following. Some people think of righteousness as though there's a good and bad. And the job of the righteous person is to leave the bad and to pursue the good. A good job, a good moral framework, a good compassionate heart. Christianity isn't about that. In Christ, he demands that you leave both your sin and your righteousness and to flee to Jesus. That means dying to everything that isn't Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Is there anything in you that needs to die? Anything that's holding you back from going to him? Jesus demands everything that you have, but offers you everything that you will ever need. You can go to him and throw yourself into his arms and know that he will take care of you. 
You can see the disciples' response to Jesus' teaching there in verse 28. Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter hears Jesus' strong demand and thought it would be helpful to point out that the disciples did what the rich man couldn't do. We've left everything. We followed you. But rather than handing Peter a gold star, Jesus explains that those who follow Jesus are not those who get the short end of the stick. We're not sitting around throwing pity parties for ourselves for following Jesus. Rather, they receive a hundredfold in this life, in this time. That if you're in Christ, you have more than you ever asked for already. That if you're in Christ, you have the most priceless treasure that you can ever dream of. And his evidence that he points to for that is your fellow church members your spiritual family, that, that, that when Jesus calls you to follow him, he doesn't just save you individually, but he saves you and adopts you into an earthly family, a spiritual family here on earth in this church. The promise of lands there isn't the earthly wealth that prosperity preachers try to peddle to us. Rather, it's a promise of rich inheritance. That if you're in Christ, and you're part of this spiritual family here in Delray, you have aunties, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, all in the church. And that is more priceless than anything that you could possibly have. I wonder if you share the same value for your church family that Jesus does. Are you able to see everything that you have to give up to follow Jesus and look around and be able to say that this was worth it. One good sign that you value your church, I would dare even say a prerequisite to even being able to say that you value a church, is belonging to a church, is going to church. When you commit to a church, when you join one, what it does is it makes explicit those family commitments. I think I might have shared this before, but uh, sometimes as, as a pastor, you have conversations with, with different Christians that have very interesting takes on the Christian life. And uh, one, one of the things I would hear frequently, especially here in L.A., is people telling me, you know, I, I'm not part of a physical church, but I'm part of the universal church. Let me tell you what I hear when I hear that. Um, when someone tells me that they're part of the universal church and not an actual church, what I hear is, I only like hanging out with the parts of the body of Christ that I like. But if you're part of any family, you know, uh, you didn't have a choice. 
And when you're in Christ, you get to be part of a body that Jesus deems to be priceless and valuable. That doesn't mean that you get along with everyone. That doesn't mean that the people that you're with share your, your same hobbies or interests. Sometimes they, their values may look a little different than yours. But when you're part of a church, when you join a church, when you actually commit formally to a church family, what you're doing is you're making explicit the family commitments that Jesus expects of us. That when you read the one another's in the New Testament, you actually get to obey that in the context of a church family who's promised to do the same with you. With family, we're not preoccupied with making sure that we're getting more than we give in whatever relational agreement that we have. You sacrifice, you love, and you care. So many of you are already doing that, and you're doing great. Let me encourage you, you're doing exactly what Jesus wants you to do. If you're not part of a church, be a part of a church. Do those things. That's exactly why baptism and the Lord's Supper are oriented around family analogies. Right? Think about when Jesus talks with Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. What does baptism represent? It represents being buried with Christ, being raised to new life. It also symbolizes new birth. That when someone joins a church and professes faith in Christ and gets baptized, they're being adopted into a new spiritual family. That's why normally baptisms happen in local churches. Now, if you got baptized in someone's backyard pool, I'm not saying your baptism is illegitimate, right? Uh, that's just an abnormal thing to do. Normally, churches would take responsibility for those that they baptize. And when they got baptized, they would emerge a member of that church. The reason why they would do that is because they understood that you were joining a family, right? The Lord's Supper isn't just some fancy magic trick that we get to engage in every week. It's actually a family supper where you commune, not just with God, but with one another. Paul is so incensed in 1 Corinthians 10 that the whole family wasn't present for that meal, that he would state very clearly that eating the bread and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner would lead some people to their deaths. Why is that so important? Not because he wanted to see church attendance go up, but because he valued the family. He valued the family of Christ being gathered together. Lawrence was a deacon of the church in Rome, and, and one day the Roman emperor Valerian uh, had invaded the church and demanded this deacon, who was in charge of kind of the church's finances and administration, that he bring all the treasures of the church and bring it into Rome. He was ransacking this particular church, and Lawrence immediately agreed. And when he came into the Roman emperor's kind of palace, he, he presented not any things, but the poor, the widowed, the disenfranchised of the church. And he said, here are the true treasures of the church. And because of that, he was a martyr. Do you value your church? I pray you do. I hope you do. Because when you look at fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're compelled by love, and you value them, and you care for them, 
and you see that they're worth a hundredfold anything you had to give up, that's a sign that you've become more like the Jesus that you claim to worship and follow. The rich young ruler couldn't get past the value of his things. I wish he saw the value of the Savior. If he, if he did, then giving up everything wouldn't have been a burden. It would have been a blessing. Charles Spurgeon says, that all is safe which is given up to Christ, and that which is kept back from Him, whatever it may be, shall prove to be a curse to you. Following Jesus costs all that we have. Being exchanged, we gain more than we could possibly ask for or think. Pray that all of us would be able to let go of whatever seeks to grip our hearts and be able to eagerly hold on to Jesus, our loving, providing, secure Savior. Because Jesus is worth more than all the world affords today. Let's pray. We know that our heart is willing, but our flesh is weak. So we ask God that you would help us. Pray, Lord, that if there are any uh, persons here that are convicted, that you would give them not just the strength to, to feel you're leading, but to actually have the strength from your spirit to take actions and to be able to obey you. Pray, Lord, that if any of us uh, are discouraged, that you would encourage them and reassure them of your value and your care for them. Pray, Lord, that you would help all of us to lead godly lives that exalt and honor you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.